Hello and welcome to the April 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York, and with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And we're going to lead today with a story from abroad, so we're putting the abroad in here and abroad. Um, so let's get started talking about... Um, the April issue of Law Notes, and as I mentioned, uh, the lead story concerns um, what's fair to uh, fair to say is an historic ruling uh, affecting the laws and policies of 23 countries that are parties to the American Convention on Human Rights. This comes to us um, from the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in a ruling on February 24, 2012. And why don't we um, why don't we back up? What is the Inter-American Court in Human Rights? Well, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights is a court that is set up under the convention, which is a treaty. Uh, and in fact, the United States had a role in the negotiation of this treaty, and it, this was during the Carter administration in the late 1970s. And the U.S. even signed the treaty, but the Senate has never ratified it. So the U.S. is not officially a party to the American Convention on Human Rights, but 23 countries in South and Central America are. Uh, Canada and Mexico are not. But uh, you go down south of, uh, of Mexico into Central America and uh, some of the Caribbean and the major countries of South America, they're all parties to this convention. Uh, it's a sort of typical human rights convention similar to the European Convention on Human Rights and uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, these international documents. And it lists various prohibited grounds of discrimination, but in a list that makes clear that it's not exclusive. So well, and, court, what, and just to be clear, uh, to flesh it out, and then we'll get into where this case yes. comes from, which it concerns a ruling out of Chile, uh, yeah. which ended up in this court. Uh, basically, uh, it guarantees that for signatories to this convention in those countries that they will respect the rights and freedoms uh, recognized to all persons subject to their jurisdiction to basically be able to exercise their rights and freedoms without any discrimination for reasons based on race, color, sex, language, religion, political, or other opinion, and important for these purposes – or any other social condition. And we'll right. get to how the court reads that language to cover the, the issue at hand. So why don't you... Art, um, well, this, this case actually uh, arises out of a custody dispute uh, between a judge, a Chilean judge who happens to be a lesbian, and her ex-husband uh, about the children. Uh, she started living with a same-sex partner. The father demanded to have custody of the children. Uh, the Chilean Supreme Court granted custody to the ex-husband in 2004, and clearly this had everything to do with the mothers living with the same-sex partner. And uh, the appeal was taken to uh, the Inter-American Court, ultimately. And the Inter-American Court said that this list of categories of forbidden discrimination is not an exclusive list. Uh, other uh, other, any other social condition meant that they could look at other classifications of people, groups of people, characteristics that are proven uh, to be the source of discrimination. And in this case, they said that sexual orientation and gender identity have now actually achieved a pretty widely recognized status under human rights conventions, the, uh, the UN uh, Universal Declaration, the European Convention, uh, are all very influential on this. And so... The Inter-American Court said sexual orientation and gender identity should be read in 
to the American Convention. So in one fell swoop now, we have 23 countries uh, that are subject to this ban on discrimination. And this is basically, as it's termed in the article, I mean, you go from Mexico on down yeah. through the hemisphere. You now have a ruling that the, the broad application, as Art just spoke to, but also that in this specific context, that sexual orientation cannot be the basis for a denial of custody. Or gender identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that, that these are forbidden grounds of discrimination. Now, when the case goes back to the Chilean courts, they ultimately have to decide, as under most countries' family law principles, what is in the best interest of the children. But they can't place a thumb on the scales and say, oh, the mother is living with the same-sex partner, therefore she's not fit. Uh, they have to focus on uh, the realities of the situation and not just the category into which someone falls. And, and in, in reaching that, I mean, there were a lot of... It, it, the court here, when they, they go through the analysis and they talk about the state has the burden to demonstrate a real concrete injury by, uh, you know, by the supposed harm of, of having the child with the, the same-sex couple. Uh, they can't just base it on historical norms of discrimination and stereotypes and all this kind of stuff. And I, for me, I hear echoes of, well, you know, the DOMA debate here in the United States. It's right. sort of it, it's sort of the court here saying the things that Congress relied upon in the United States to justify this sort of very um, – awful federal statute are not the types of things we're going to be able to rely on to justify a child custody determination in this context, which I thought was sort of interesting given what's going on in the United States right now. Yes, and and I think it reflects an international trend in this regard because you find similar rhetoric in decisions from the European Court of Human Rights. Does this? I guess that that brings us to a question. I, I know what Scalia would answer, what the answer to this question would be for Scalia, but leaving him aside for a moment... Is this going to have impact in the United States? I mean, I know as a as a sort of strictly legal matter, it's obviously not binding precedent. But how much does a decision like this matter to to American courts, particularly federal courts? Well, this is this is a matter of intense disagreement and debate within federal courts. As as you will recall, in Lawrence versus Texas, the Texas sodomy law case uh, from two thousand three, decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Justice Kennedy, writing for the court cited decisions by the European Court of Human Rights uh, and made the point that to the extent that the, the decision that was being overruled in that case, Bowers versus Hardwick, the 1986 Georgia sodomy decision, to the extent that decision relied on some kind of idea that there was a broad consensus across Western civilization against homosexuality, he says, well, here's the European Court of Human Rights is striking down sodomy laws in places like Ireland. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have to look to the developing trends in the world, not as binding precedent to the U.S. courts, but as examples of how enlightened jurisprudence are looking at these issues, and uh, drew a rather anguished comment from Justice Scalia in his dissent that, you know, we're interpreting the U.S. Constitution, not some foreign document and what other courts think about is not really relevant to us. So there, there was generated from that a stream of law journal articles uh, over the ensuing almost decade now. It's it's hard to believe that uh, Lawrence versus Texas 2003 and uh, next year we'll be That's celebrating right. the 10th anniversary already. Uh, but uh, there is a big academic debate and a debate among judges as to when and whether it's appropriate to look at foreign precedents, at decisions under international treaties to which the U.S. isn't a party, like the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, to decisions by the highest courts of other states interpreting their own constitutions, such as South Africa, for example, or Australia. Uh, in this debate, which has been actually carried out on television and in live forums uh, between Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer, uh, 
Justice Scalia says we should ignore them, that we are interpreting the U.S. Constitution. It has its own particular history, its own particular wording, its own particular development. What they say is not of relevance to us in interpreting our Constitution. Justice Breyer says, look, as judges, we look anywhere we can right. and for legal reasoning that and, might be helpful to and us. And we've seen this in death penalty jurisprudence right. as well, which in this, this note we, we refers to some of the issues, I believe, with this convention and our right. lack of full ratification of it involves the application of the death penalty. Right. Um, and in fact, several of the countries that have uh, adhered to this convention stated reservations with respect to the death penalty because the American Convention is opposed to the use of the death penalty and many countries wanted to retain the flexibility to use it in the most egregious cases. And, and let, let me ask you one more question about the context in which this case arises. Uh, and I've asked you this, uh, I don't know if it's been on a podcast or, or on the rare occasions when we talk offline. Um, is Very rare. Very rare. As little as possible. Um, We're legal strangers, folks. <laughs> um, How much does it matter that these are cases involving families with children? Meaning, is it it that much harder for a court to to sort of reach a ruling, uh, a a sort of negative ruling for the LGBT community when, I mean, right here we have, again, the interests of a child at stake. And we see a lot of these cases where I think people from our community say good law is being made, and they often involve families and the realities of families and families with children and obviously same-sex couples having having children. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Well, I think the phenomenon of same-sex couples raising children have played a very important role in many of our legal struggles, not least the struggle for same-sex marriage. Uh, if you look back at the trial, the first major trial that we had in this country on same-sex marriage in Hawaii back in the mid-1990s, all the expert testimony was about child-rearing and gay people as parents. And some people might even ask, is that really relevant? Most gay couples aren't raising children, but many of them want to get married. Uh, But to courts, the public policy issues surrounding marriage really center very heavily on children and the role of marriage as a setting in which to raise children. So the fact that many same-sex couples are raising children helps to strengthen the argument for marriage. And it's certainly an answer to the... uh you know the relentless focus on the procreative argument about about right. limiting marriage to opposite-sex couples is a strange one to make when you have many same-sex couples already raising children. And in many cases, children who are conceived within that relationship through donor insemination or surrogacy. Uh, so children who are uh, genetically related to one or even both parents, depending upon who the uh, who the donor is. Right. That's a good point. I'll leave with, uh, before we take a break, it, it, it's worth noting here that although, as you mentioned, the, the case will ultimately, um, you know, the Chilean authorities will obviously have the final say now about the best interest of the child, the Chilean government here has said that they will respect, uh, which is probably not a surprise, I, I suppose, given that they're a signatory, but they will respect the ruling of the court. Um, so certainly this is a positive development. We will um, take a short break, and when we return, We'll be discussing a case right here from New York uh, involving New York City's health department, the New York City Health Department's refusal to issue an amended birth certificate to a transgender man. Stay with us. We are back talking about the case of Bernie uh, v. New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Um, the court will get into the facts of this case, uh, which are, I think, from many people's perspective, are pretty troubling. Um, 
the court here, um, it's, a, it's a case out of the New York Supreme Court in New York County, uh, and it concerns the city health department's uh, refusal initially to issue a new birth certificate to Lewis Leonard Burney, a transgender man, which would show his current male gender identity. Um, and in the course of that refusal, the department had rejected as inadequate proof a certified statement by the uh, by the, the man's doctor, by the surgeon specifically, that he had been through uh, convertive surgery and, and, and the department de- demanded all sorts of additional details and proof um, in connection with the issue of a, uh, of a new birth certificate, and, and this gentleman ultimately sued. So, Art, you know, I, I guess one way to approach this case is to give us a sense of what, what is the health department concern here just to begin with, if there is a concern. I mean, someone presents with a fair amount of medical substantiation of of the transition, and the health department goes back, and we'll get into the details of this, and seems to say, well, give us more, and give us more intrusive type information. Well, well, what we're talking about here is altering and substituting a new vital record for an old vital record. Uh, We're talking about someone who was born in the city of New York, identified at birth as a woman, issued a birth certificate, uh, or a female, as a girl. I guess they don't identify newborns as women, uh, but <laughs> as, you know, female. Uh, issued a birth certificate with the name and the gender identification on it. And now, close to 70 years later in this case, according to news reports, the, the opinion itself doesn't mention the age of the petitioner, but uh, some press reports uh, about the decision mention that Mr. Bernie is nearing 70. So many, many decades later, uh, the city health department is approached to issue an amended birth certificate with a male name. Uh, A name change had previously been approved in Kings uh, County Supreme Court uh, and a designation as male. And so their position is, we're going to change a vital record. We're going to change some history here. We're going to change some documentation that people rely on as being authoritative. We want proof beyond a reasonable doubt that this is a permanent change. And uh, it was a struggle even getting there. There was a time when the health department absolutely refused to make any change. Uh, They were first approached in the mid-1960s. And uh, the opinion here, a very scholarly opinion by by Justice Paul Feynman, uh, the opinion goes back through the history. And when they were first approached uh, about changing one of the birth, a birth certificate to reflect a gender transition, they didn't quite know what to do. They referred the question to the New York Academy of Medicine, which set up a special committee of inquiry to look into the matter and write a report. Uh, ultimately, the Academy of Medicine in their 1965 report, this is a very early stage in the game before most people knew there was any such thing as transgender. Uh, their report at that time recommended against issuing amended birth certificates or any designated change, they said, because no matter what surgical or medical procedures are undertaken, the person's genetic identity doesn't change. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong on the history here, but there was also this notion that assisting the sort of uh, person with their condition, so to speak, uh, by facilitating this name, the, the birth certificate change would only almost, I mean, I could be paraphrasing incorrectly here, but reinforce this 
this sort of um, condition, right, which was to be not not necessarily well, to be welcomed. Well, well, you're you're being uh, a bit euphemistic here. The uh, the doctors of the New York Academy of Medicine said uh, this is a mental illness. Uh, this belief that someone is a different gender than their genitalia would indicate, and uh, we don't want to encourage them. Mm-hmm. We don't want to reinforce it. By having some official document saying that they're not the gender that they were born in, uh, and so that was the approach of the health department to decline to grant these uh, for a period of years. And then in the early 70s, as the movement for LGBT rights got underway, because remember this the 65 report is several years before Stonewall. Uh, there was a sort of quiet behind the scenes gay rights movement that started up in the 50s, but it wasn't until after Stonewall that we had a very more open and aggressive movement. Uh, that was actively agitating for change in social policy. And in response to those, uh, the advocacy for change, the department did uh, agree that there might, under certain circumstances, be an appropriate case in which they would change a certificate. And the Board of Health adopted new rules, and the uh, legislation was changed, delegating to the Board of Health uh, the authority to establish standards. And so now they're establishing standards. Part of the problem is with this case is they don't seem to have settled on a definitive list of documentation that they need because poor Mr. Bernie applies, uh, attaches to his application a copy of his name change order from Kings County Supreme Court. He attaches a copy of a certified notarized letter from the surgeon who performed the surgery. The letter states when it took place, where it took place, specifies that it was female to male, uh, gender reassignment surgery, says that it was successful, and that as a result, uh, Mr. Bernie is now functioning as a male. And and I guess uh, we maybe I'm, for obvious reasons, I'm inclined to be a little harsh here on the, on the city's health department, and we'll talk about that. I think Justice Feynman was pretty harsh on the health department here, but unless you think that that doctor is forging what he or she has written or you think those are so easy to come by, the way that, to be fair, the way that, you know, getting a note that, you know, you were sick, so you can't you know, give us back the refund on the yeah. plane ticket because yeah. I was too sick to fly. Those kind yeah. of notes are pretty, pretty standard. But I can is tell there... you, as a professor, <laughs> I get doctors' notes that tell me very little. <laughs> right, uh, leaving but those that's okay. leaving those aside, it, unless we really had reason to doubt the sort of authenticity and legitimacy of what this doctor and surgeon wrote, how could that not be enough? Well, I think department? you know, the, I think there was a red flag for the health department because. Uh, Mr. Bernie went to Scottsdale, Arizona to get uh, his gender reassignment surgery done. And they're, they're thinking, you know, we don't know this doctor from anyone. There's some doctor in Arizona. We never heard of him before. Uh, and so they want more documentation. And at one point they said, what we would like to see is the psychologist's report before the surgery saying that you are transgender and you should have the surgery. And then we want a psychologist's report after the surgery showing that you've adjusted to the change and now you're living as a man. It's, it's not enough for us to have a medical. We want the psychological. And, and they said, also, all the doctor says that is female-to-male surgery. The doctor didn't specify what he did. Well, here's where we get to the part that, and this comes up a lot in these types of cases, and I think we've even talked about it. I mean, there are two aspects that seem to be a fixation of, of whether it's government agencies, uh, people, uh, people of a certain political persuasion, or the or, press. Or the press, but it it's always seems to be about two things, and maybe they're, I guess, in a, in a way related. Uh, it seems to come down to restrooms and genitalia. 
What genitalia well, actually, does this person... Even, even more than restrooms and genitalia, because we have had press reports over the past few years of two cases now, uh, I believe one in Australia and one in the United States, of a female-to-male transition, which did not include a hysterectomy, a subsequent marriage between the transgender man and a woman, uh, a woman who was unable to conceive a child, and the transgender man who had not had a hysterectomy was still able to bear a child, and so we had the phenomenon, which was seized upon with some glee in the press, of a pregnant man. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think that would be a concern in the case of Mr. Bernie if he's approaching his 70th birthday. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, it, it may be that uh, the surgeon felt that a hysterectomy wasn't necessary in the case of Mr. Bernie. Because but but to put it in this context, but I mean, this it context, certainly seems like yeah. the health department is interested in, in the genitalia. Yeah, issue. there's at least one quote in the decision that suggests that, you know, they'd like to have some evidence that uh, Mr. Bernie has been rendered by the surgery functionally male, including genitalia. And uh, that would be rather unusual because the attempts uh, to manufacture a prosthetic phallus for a man in this context, uh, from what I've read, have been generally unsatisfactory. It's extremely expensive. You don't get something that's going to function in a natural way. And so a lot of people who do the female-to-male conversion just don't bother with that. They do the hormones. They do the surgical alteration of body shape. various uh, things that could be done to make the body conform more to a male than a female status. And that's sufficient. They're presenting as male. They they change their name. Uh, and they're living as a man. And uh, so uh, the position of those who advocate for the rights of transgender people is that that should be sufficient for the government to recognize them as male. And, and in this case, and I, I think it's worth... Reading part of, uh, of Justice Feynman's decision, I mean, ultimately here the case, the, the health department is ultimately ordered to reconsider. Uh, I, I was a little, I didn't quite follow the. Maybe you could help us on the status of, of what goes on at this reconsideration of the denial. Well, uh, the reconsideration is, if you're not going to allow the doctor's letter to be sufficient documentation, give us a detailed written explanation of why and what additional information you need. Uh, not enough these conclusory statements, well, we want this report and this report and this report. Tell us why the doctor's report is insufficient. And Justice Feynman emphasizes that the doctor's certification is on letterhead with contact information. They can always contact the doctor and say, please tell us a few more details about well, the yeah, operation. One approach would have been to find out more about the doctor as opposed right. to turning around to the – they actually contacted one of the facts of this case is rather than – and you point this out, uh, rather than contacting the, the attorney uh, for, for Mr. Bernie in response to a request for information, they contact him directly, asking him for all yeah, sorts this, of additional information. This is sort of unusual. So, so Mr. Bernie applies for the change, the amended birth certificate, and when they respond with a letter demanding more information, he goes to an attorney. The attorney writes a letter saying uh, we think that the information he submitted is already sufficient. And essentially you're going to get sued if you right. keep this up. And rather than respond to the attorney, they respond directly to Mr. Bernie again with a new list that's slightly different from the old list. Uh, so uh, obviously it's a bit puzzling. So then the, the Article 78 proceeding is filed to try to compel. And uh, Justice Feynman takes the position 
that uh, he's not going to compel at this point. He's going to order them to explain why. If they're not going to issue the certificate based on the doctor's letter to explain why they why it's not sufficient and what else they need and what the reason is for needing more. But in the course of doing that, uh, he is very critical about how the department has handled this. He says, while anything is possible, of course, from the opinion, it does not seem very likely that an individual would go through all the years of required preparation for surgical transition, including psychotherapy, undergo major surgery, assume life under his or her new gender, and then decide it was all a mistake and change back. And their articulated argument before the judge is, we're looking for evidence of permanent change. We don't want to issue a new vital record, a document of history, if this is going to be something that's just transient or a whim or something like that. And he says, this apparent assumption tends to suggest a certain ignorance by the department of the lengthy transition process and the lives and experience of transgender people, also revealed in its legal papers, which consistently refer to petitioner using female pronouns, despite petitioner asserting himself as a transgender male. And, and can we pause on that? Because this is not, and we talked about this earlier, this is not just any government agency. This is the that, New York City Public Health Department. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's so sad. It's la- it, it, the laugh is about how sad it is, is that if any agency you would expect to be on the sort of enlightened or a firm understanding of, of, of the reality of transgender people's lives and how this all comes to, to bear in this sort of very specific request about the birth certificate and its import and how one goes about handling a request for more information, et cetera, et cetera, you would think it would be the New York City Health Department. And you would be wrong. <laughs> because, in fact, the New York State Health Department, which takes care of this issue outside the city of New York, has been much more progressive and much more accepting of the reality of transgender people's lives in uh, accommodating them on these kinds of changes. And it's the New York City Health Department where we have uh, the greatest medical centers and medical schools and everything in the world. You'd think that New York City would be a leader on this, and actually New York City is a reluctant follower on this. And and, and on that note, the New York City as a reluctant follower, we're going to leave it there. We'll take another break. When we return, we'll be discussing a case out of Texas uh, and the issue of whether falsely calling someone gay or implying that they're gay is still slander per se in that jurisdiction. We're back talking about the case of Van Meter versus Morris out of the Texas Court of Appeals in Waco, Texas. Uh, and this involves a, a court affirming a trial verdict for a, a gentleman who sued a restaurant owner for making repeated and loud statements in her restaurant in the presence of customers that others could hear, which some people could construe as imputing a homosexual relationship between the person, Morris, and his good friend, not his lover, his good friend, Glenn Warren. So the question at issue in this case is whether just saying loudly enough or implying loudly enough in the presence of others at a restaurant in Waco, Texas, where others can hear, <laughs> is slander per se post-Lawrence v. Texas. Take it away, Art. How does that work? Well, uh, the way it works is the traditional law of defamation uh, that we inherit from the English common law is that if you say something that the reasonable listener will interpret as uh, being harmful to the reputation of the person you're talking about, it could be actionable as a tort. And in terms of slander and uh, libel, which were the two uh, traditional classifications, libel was a written defamatory statement and slander was a spoken defamatory statement. 
and if uh, you libel somebody, it was presumed to cause injury to them. And so you wouldn't have to show any kind of special damages in order to maintain an action. But with slander, it was not presumed to cause injury unless you could show special damages, unless the statement fell into one of the categories of per se slander, that is, statements that were deemed to be so harmful about, uh, to, to someone's rep social reputation, social standing, so likely to inflict injury to them that we will presume it. And calling someone gay was one of those categories. Uh, now, truth was a defense. Uh, if the speaker correctly labeled somebody as gay, uh, that was a defense. But under the, under the strict common law, calling someone gay, and I remember being shocked by this in my bar review course. And uh, this dating myself, I took the bar review course in 1977, and they were going through the New York law of defamation and what are the per se categories, and they said calling someone a homosexual is per se defamatory for purposes of New York law. And you know what, folks? It still is. This is the amazing thing to me. The New York courts have not backed off from it, even though the Court of Appeals struck down the sodomy law in 1980, struck down the solicitation law a year or two later, even though we have a law in New York making it illegal to discriminate based on sexual Art, orientation. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked into silence, I'm and I'm not... I'm, I'm not well, Texas. <laughs> let's, let's focus back on Texas, because in Texas, of course, in Texas, they have a sodomy law on the books. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said in 2003 that it is not enforceable against private sex by consenting uh, you adults. Know, that phenomenon, I'll, I'll never cease to but find. But it's still on the books. The, uh, the laws on the books that are no longer legitimate or enforceable, that remain on the books. Well, and, it's... And, you know, when it's laziness, that's one thing. It's not laziness. It's not laziness here. No, it's, it's not laziness it's, here. It's, it's, it's a stubborn point. It's legislatures that refuse to go on record as voting that it's okay to be gay and to have gay sex. And, they don't you know, to... as an aside, this is a total right. aside. I don't even know if you know the answer to this, but you often know the answers to the question. I don't know the many questions that I throw at you that I haven't peppered you with before. How is it that a natural result of a court ruling isn't... When they say a sodomy statute, for example, is unconstitutional, why as part of that ruling, part and parcel of that ruling, isn't it the case that therefore the state legislature is commanded to remove those statutes from the books? I would say separation of powers. Well, but... Well, <laughs> you know, it's up to the legislature to decide how to react to a court ruling. They could theoretically reenact the sodomy law just covering conduct that isn't protected under the Constitution because in Lawrence versus Texas, the court emphasized that we were talking about private, consensual, adult. We weren't talking about prostitution. We weren't talking about sex with minors. We weren't talking about a situation where someone would not be able to consent. So presumably, a legislature could go back and do some surgery on the statute and narrow it down to the areas that are not protected by the See, Constitution. See, there you go, answering a rhetorical question right. with a very good, actual, genuine Rhetoric. answer about constitutional yes. law. Sure. All right, but back so, to Texas. So, so, so Van Meter versus Morris. Morris. So Van Meter versus Morris. One of the problems uh, with this case is, was there evidence of special damages? And there was evidence of special damages. Uh, and this is Mr. Mr. He had a stroke, is, is that Yeah, he, is had, that he had a stroke. Uh, Mr. Uh, Morris had a stroke. He was so agitated by all this. Now, whether his agitation caused the stroke... Yes. I uh, mean, is, that's a big issue. Uh, the, the witnesses on this were not medical experts. They were just acquaintances of his who attributed the stroke to his agita as a result of this. Because uh, evidently he was a regular at this restaurant. He, by regular, I mean he showed up frequently with his friend, Glenn Warren, and when he showed up without Mr. Warren... 
the response of Ms. Van Meter was to say, where's your wife? Or where's your husband? And he felt that she was implying that he had some kind of romantic relationship with Warren in the presence of other customers and uh, that uh, people were imputing homosexuality to him, which he claimed was harming his reputation, was hurting his business, and so on and so forth. And the issue here is whether under Texas law he can call that per se slander, which means he doesn't have to prove any special damages. All he has to prove is that it's false, and the court will assume that it's harmful to his rep reputation, his social standing, his business, and so forth. And here the court said, yeah, that's, that's still the case in Texas. And, and I want to I wanna, I wanna end this segment with your own words, Art. I'm quoting you, not the court or any other witty observer. It's, it's you, Art. And here's the quote about what happened in Texas. It says, in short, now a trial judge and three appellate judges have gone on record in 2011 as finding that the macho code of Texas is so firm that it can be presumed that a person's reputation and business will be harmed if somebody teases him in public with insinuations that he has a boyfriend. That's witty, Art. Thank you. And it makes a strong point. And I think, uh, as, we, as we've said, uh, this is an issue about whether the social acceptance of gay people has progressed as rapidly as the legal rights of gay people. And, and, and to be fair, this is in a jurisdiction as uh, – and there are many other jurisdictions like it in this country where the rights of LGBT people are not advanced as much as they have in other places or at least on the books, you know, whether it's with respect to um, – you know, state constitutional bans or state statutory bans on, on same-sex marriage. There are jurisdictions where it's probably all kidding aside, probably still the case that someone like this gentleman could genuinely feel, and it may be true, that just having the words uh, insinuated that one is gay is enough to do damage or to make one feel like damage has been done. So. So, so we'll know that we've really arrived when the idea that it's harmful per se to call someone gay bites the dust. That may be far in the future. All right. And with that, we will take a very short break and we'll conclude with our Of Note segment. Uh, for those of you who've listened before, this is a segment where we'll mention some other notable, infuriating, or hilarious developments in the world of LGBT legal news. Stay with us. We're back with our Of Note section. Um, Art, what do you have of note for us this month? Well, what I have of note is a surprise move by the Department of Justice in a case pending in the Ninth Circuit, Galinsky versus Office of Personnel Management. Uh, this involves Karen Galinsky, an employee of the Ninth Circuit, a staff attorney there, who married her same-sex partner in 2008 in California and applied for her partner to be enrolled in the Employee Benefit Plan provided to federal employees and administered by the Office of Personnel Management. She was turned down eventually led to a lawsuit in the uh, Federal District Court in San Francisco where Judge Jeffrey White held that the marriage had to be recognized, uh, that uh, Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, which forbids federal government from recognizing same-sex marriages, was unconstitutional. The bipartisan legal advisory group of the U.S. House of Representatives, which is formally defending DOMA because the Justice Department uh, about a year ago said they would no longer defend it, they intervened and they appealed to the Ninth Circuit where the case is pending before a three-judge panel. Well, the Justice Department on March 26th filed a motion asking the Ninth Circuit to skip the three-judge panel, go directly on bank, which in the Ninth Circuit means an 11-judge panel, the chief judge and 10 judges drawn at random, 
and they asked for expedited briefing, and they asked the court to quickly schedule a hearing on bank by September 12th. And, you know, what's going on here? What's going on here, I think, is this week, in fact, today, as we're taping this podcast, uh, the First Circuit is hearing argument in the DOMA challenge out of the Federal District Court in Boston. And I think the Justice Department, one thing, wants to line up these appellate cases and get them done because this is a question that ultimately needs to be resolved at the Supreme Court if Congress is not going to repeal DOMA. And in addition, I think they see a national election looming in the fall, and they're thinking if there's a change of administration, the new attorney general is going to start defending DOMA. That seems pretty likely regardless of which of the Republican candidates becomes the nominee. Uh, so it's a good idea to get these arguments in and get the cases submitted at the circuit courts before the election. Uh, they're not saying that, but I, I have a feeling that that's part of the motivation. While the Justice Department is arguing, and they did in this case, even though they're not only the defendant, they're arguing that Dome is unconstitutional, and it's the committee from Congress that's arguing it is. So this is a very interesting development. Try and, to push it forward. And on, on, on that note, from from the scary possibility of uh, leaving politics aside, yeah. uh, the scary possibility of a new AG doing a turnaround on Doma, uh, we'll move to hopefully um, might have noticed uh, some some good news in the in in the wake of some some other good news, which is the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, as we all know. Uh, the Associated Press is now reporting that um, Norwich University, the nation's oldest private military academy, is holding its first Gay Pride Week at the instance, insistence of its LGBTQ and Allies Club, which held its first meeting at Norwich University just hours after the ban was lifted in September. So we see the emergence of LGBT uh, and allied groups at our nation's military academies, which uh, we can term both inevitable and a happy uh, a happy outcome of the of the repeal. And as as, as you note, Art, um, you know it's it's worth noting that the week of events for Pride Week uh, is going to include Norwich's first gay prom, and the expected keynote speaker will be none other than Vermont Governor Peter. I'll leave you for the last name. Is it Shumlin? Peter Shumlin. Shumlin. Who, who signed into law the Vermont same-sex marriage bill. After Vermont, as we know, is the first in the nation to have a civil union bill. Right. Civil union So law, the People's so. Republic of Vermont is still out there in front of the trends. That's right. So good for them, and we're glad to note it. Um, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. To read uh, back issues, please visit the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. And this and future podcasts can always be found online in the iTunes store or at legal.podbean.com. Finally, your comments and questions are also welcome at info at le-gal.org. Thanks so much.